I do have to I do have to do full disclosure. I've actually been to Alaska. I uh, went with a friend to Alaska. It was July 4th time frame, so it's summer in Alaska. We land, we go out and eat dinner, we go to a bar because a band's playing. One o'clock in the morning, we walk outside. I may or may not have had too much vodka that night. I walked outside, sunlight everywhere. I got down on my knees and prayed to God and said, I will never drink again, God. I don't know what's happened. Freaked me out, the sunlight at one in the morning. Because you thought you just put on a really long bender. I had no idea what had happened, but I knew it was bad. (laughs) There was something with the bender that, uh, yeah, I don't know what had happened. But anyway, yeah, that was funny. Beautiful up there. Never had a bad time in Alaska. And as you say, it's beautiful up there. Yeah, it, it really The is. only problem is everything is bigger in Alaska, including the bitey things that fly. The mosquitoes. Yeah. The, the running joke, and I will say it politely, is that it, they have sex with the chickens. I, you yeah, know, exactly. yeah. That's, that's what I've heard. Yeah, exactly. So, David Hobbs, how did we meet? I don't even remember. We met because uh, an old friend of mine uh, with whom I'm now working, Steve Looper, uh, had been a lifelong fan of yours because you're one of the few people who says the things that you know you shouldn't have said, but they needed to be said anyway. <laughs> I like that. Um, and uh, he, so he put me on to the podcast, and and uh, then he eventually organised that we uh, connected and we spoke briefly on the phone and thought there may be something to talk about. Yeah, because I was in a Wendy's about to when we when we talked on the phone, and there are other. Brands of burger. There, I mean, there are, if, yeah. if this was the BBC, we'd have to make sure that there were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Full disclosure. Well, if this were the BBC, we were fact check and truly it was a Wendy's. You know, <laughs> we wouldn't have fact checked that in America. But um, the uh, the girlfriend used to work for uh, the BBC. So I get. Oh, well, there you go. I've yeah. actually seen the, uh, the format book from the BBC yeah. in terms of all that. Yeah, it's great. But no, the, the, the interesting thing is. You started talking about Alaska, and I haven't heard anybody talk about Alaska when it comes to yeah. oil and gas in forever. I mean, there's Prudhoe Bay and BP back in the 70s. Yeah. And uh, so I was like, yeah, I want to talk about this. I and the, only, and the only really good source of recent news has been the uh, the problems getting the Willow development uh, approved. And, and was it going to happen? Was it not going to happen? You must have. You must have. You got Collins' chair there, yeah. I guess. Sorry right. about that. Let's, let's try that again. There we go. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, so level set me. Tell me what you're doing in, up in up in Alaska. So I'm I'm working with Pantheon Resources, who are developing some very large oil fields in Alaska. And as you said, and wasn't that long ago that that Alaska was yesterday's news and not much going on. Uh, you know, over the last forty years, there's been talk of of a gas pipeline, but that was sort of the only real. Uh, you know, tick, tick, tick of news coming out of Alaska. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, if we if we cut to the headline first and then then work back from it, uh, the next decade is going to see Alaska as one of the most active places for for development anywhere uh, in the world. Uh, you've got big development uh, out in the uh, National Petroleum uh, Reserve, uh, 
uh, ConocoPhillips developing the Willow uh, field, and and my guess is that that it's an awful lot bigger in terms of the core field and its satellites than than has been let on to date. You've got Santos who are developing Pika Horseshoe. That's the old Bill Armstrong um, assets that he uh, sold a large share of. Um, and uh, the other development that's coming on will be Pantheon Resources, and that's two big fields. Um, most recently, uh, the Kodiak field uh, was appraised by Neville and Sewell, and, and they gave contingent resources just south of a billion barrels. Um, and the great thing about that is that it's sitting right next door to the Dalton Highway and the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. So instead of spending years and billions to get to uh, an export route, um, it's sort of like a really cold version of West Texas. Nice. See, so, so do this, because then I want to dig into that and have you tell me everything that you can tell me about that. But real quick, give me background. What, where'd you go to school? What'd you do in your career? And when you say you're working on it, what does that mean? You got a company, et cetera. Okay. So, so I'm originally a petroleum engineer from the Royal School of Mines Imperial College. Um, I worked as a drilling engineer in the North Sea and the Irish Sea for a few years, then moved to some independent companies and ended up uh, around 2000 working with Cambridge Energy Research Associates, Dan Jurgens, out yeah. there, um, and uh, spent a decade there, uh, ended up as head of research and chief energy strategist and, until uh, I got uh, asked to come and help set up a think tank in Saudi Arabia. Um, so the King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, uh, which is just outside Riyadh, um, and building from scratch a team of about 100 energy, economics, uh, environmental, and, and policy researchers. Um, and then I thought I was finished and, and I was going to go and sail uh, down in the Caribbean, heading towards the Panama Canal when... Uh, do, do a podcast, wear hoodies, hang out in oh. Richmond, Texas. Well, <laughs> some, some, your version of that. That, that, yeah. well, that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, I, there you go. Uh, I, I thought I'd paid my dues. Um, and, and as I say, COVID hit. Um, we turned tail and, and sailed back up to uh, Rhode Island and left the boat there. Uh, <laughs> and, and when eventually we were allowed back into America, we were about to set off doing the same thing. Um, and uh, I got a call from, from the team at Pantheon Resources who, who had had some issues that, that had led to a, a collapse in the share price and uh, asked if I could come and help. So I'm now the executive chairman of Pantheon Resources. Um, we're in the process of, of turning it around. The, uh, so Pantheon Resources, if people want to Google is there a, or look it up, find out more. Assuming you got a ticker symbol, you got a website, yeah. all uh, that sort of thing. So, and where are the, you publicly traded? On, currently on the London uh, Exchange, the AIM market. Okay. Uh, and that's it's P A N R. Um, there is an OTC ticker, but I'm not quite sure how those things happen because it's not either. something the company does. Um, right. But that's P T H R F. Um, the, uh, the website is pantheonresources.com. Um, and uh, so, any any information is available there. There we go. All the all the uh, good stuff. The okay, real quick before we get to Alaska, two things. One, where's the accent from? And let me give this disclaimer. So the girlfriend mm -hmm. is British. She's lived here eighteen years, but she is British. And whenever I meet someone 
that has a British sounding accent. She asked, she asked me, well, where is it? I.e. the regional dialect. And my response is always, I don't know, outside America. And she'll, she'll say snarky stuff like, we invented your language and we don't like what you Texans have done with it. So, oh, it's not just Texans. I think it's yeah. all Americans. <laughs> we bet, yeah. Boston. I mean, I think Boston's been voted the worst accent on the planet. But anyway. Well, I spent a decade in Boston, and, and there are, again, there are regional accents within Boston. And if you can't spot the different regional accents within Boston, then, then you're not a Bostonian. So she's always pissed if I don't come back with what regional accent it was. So right. okay, I can't so tell. I like to think I have no regional accent. I think it's right. probably received pronunciation. Um, I grew up, uh, started out in Essex, uh, which is just north of London, moved to Connecticut, which is about three and a half thousand Now, where miles. was the college that, or the university? Sorry. Oh, sorry. The university. The university. Um, yeah. Um, I've learned that. The school thing. The school. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College. Uh, it actually doesn't exist because they merged them all into a single um, sort of faculty type uh, arrangement. But that's in South Kensington, just between the museums and the Royal Albert Hall. Um, that's where Imperial College uh, I'm a, is. I think a week and a half from now, I'm going to be at the Royal Albert Hall well, seeing, seeing the Christmas carols. So, yeah. so cool. Um, all right. So we've, we've cleared up the, uh, the that's, accent. That's the origin of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, it's, it's been a lot of places, and I, I think I've stolen a little bit of everything, enough that am I allowed to say that you mistook it for Australian to start with? No, don't say that. I can't she say that. She will kill me. Okay, so She'll we can cut me. that bit out. Yeah, exactly. Get rid of that. Get rid of the South African. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of that. All of that. So um, give me one, before we jump into Alaska, mm. give me a cool Dan Jurgen story. You've got to have a hundred of them. Uh, I, there are there are hundreds of, of cool Dan Jurgen stories, um, of course, uh, and and some of them I'm sure are repeatable. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I think I think that the uh, let me uh, run the story. Let me just tell you what's cool about Dan. Yeah, which love is to hear. that that Dan is because he's a historian and a journalist at heart. Um, he is he has an ability to cr construct a narrative from what may seem a relatively disconnected set of facts in a way that speaks straight into the heart of, of his audience. Um, and I think that it's, that it's that ability to narrate in a way that makes you feel that you were actually watching these things happening as he describes them. And then you, you sort of almost by osmosis get this understanding of why the things that happened were important. So he's, he, he really has a way of helping you to better understand the things that you thought you already knew in a useful way. Um, and and it's, uh, it's an extraordinary talent, um, I have to say. And, and uh, whenever we used to write stuff together, I would, I would have a look on my wall and see how many Pulitzer Prizes I had. And, <laughs> and then I'd look at the number he had, and I would simply accept his edits. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I agree with what, what you, you said, and I will kind of pile on and say, it's brilliant on an absolute basis, but when you go to those skills on a relative basis with the rest of us in energy, because uh -huh. we're a bunch of geeky, geeky engineers yeah. that can't oh, yeah. tell a story to save our lives, uh, yeah. it was even more impressive. Because, yeah. I mean, very, very few of us actually have a gift for storytelling like he does. Absolutely. And, and the other thing that a lot of us don't have is the ability, maybe it's the humility, to learn and take a brief. Um, because quite often we get told things that we think we already knew, 
uh, and and we're resistant to the nuances that uh, that help us to understand information and turn it into insight. Yeah, no, that's very. Uh... I have to say, the ten years that I spent with him were among the most intellectually stimulating uh, ten years that of my career. I bet so. I bet so. He's he's a fascinating. I, every chance I get to read anything he's done, listen yeah. to him speak, just amazing. So here's here's the insider tip. Okay. You need to read what Angela Stent writes, his wife, because she is to to looking at Russia. She is the Dan Yergin, um, you know, compared oh, to nice. energy. So if you really want to understand Russia and the former Soviet Union, then you need to read Angela Stent. Gotcha. All right, pro tip. I like mm. that. So what will you? What can you tell me about Alaska? I want to hear it all. Like, how did they get interested in there? What did you see? What are formations? What how how do you drill in Alaska? Just I mean, I'm gonna sit here for the next thirty minutes with my my Diet Coke and you yep. just fire away because this is fascinating. So so I think you know, there are a number of different ways you can attack this. And I'll I'll warn you, if I say anything that gives the impression of being geological knowledge, it is that of an engineer who hasn't really been an engineer for a while. Yeah. Um so so it should come with a huge health warning. Perfect. Uh, but but the rebirth of Alaska has really been looking at a set of plays that are geologically younger than than the legacy plays, um, and uh, that are much more airily extensive than anyone thought the prospectivity of Alaska was. So, if you if you think back to Prudhoe Bay and the Kaparik River and uh, field and and uh, you know all the satellites around that, that's the sort of the core hub of, of what's going on. And then you've got this slightly oddball Point Thompson out to uh, out to the east. Uh, which is the high-pressure gas condensate field where they're recycling the gas and sending some condensate along. That was uh, owned and operated by ExxonMobil. They've they've now handed on the operatorship as they've uh, focused their their um, their activity in other places. Um, and then uh, I'm, I I couldn't tell you exactly when the reappraisal of of the Cretaceous uh, potential. Yeah, you'll you'll have heard of the Nanashuk, um, which is I think. Um, God, I hope I get this right. Maastrichtian um, after Maastricht in in Holland. So you know the, well, the, the key... European influence is strong. There so the Campanian go. and then the Maastrichtian on top uh, are the top end of the uh, Cretaceous, and and they they were younger fields, and and no one really knew that it was there um, in terms of of the extent to which it is. Hi, this is David interrupting the podcast to say. I ran it past my geologist who told me that I screwed up. Uh, I shouldn't have said the Nanashuk was Campanian and Maastrichtian. I should have said that it was Albion and Aptian. Uh, in a moment, you're going to hear me screw up and forget to mention the Shublik Shale as a key source rock. Uh, and in addition, he said there were other minor errors, but none of them as embarrassing as those. Now back to the podcast. And credit to the guys at ConocoPhillips, to uh, Bill Armstrong, who was really the, uh, uh, you know, he was he was the uh, uh, the George Mitchell um, right. of of the rebirth of Alaska in in that sense. Um, but the the story of how Pantheon ended up there is um, almost an accident. In that there was an organization called Great Bear Petroleum, um, set up by um, a group of of people. Uh, who had a view actually that they thought they were going to do um, tight oil shale. Um, it was going to be the oil shales because the uh, the source rocks in Alaska are absolutely fantastic. 
Yeah. Um, and so the two particular ones that were being looked at, one is the HRZ or the GRZ, depending on, on who you are. Um, I gather HRZ stands for highly radioactive zone, um, but I'm not entirely sure how radioactive that is. I've never been down deep enough to be up close to it. Um, never, never had a Geiger counter yeah, down there. Yeah, Geiger <laughs> counter. But, but there are good reasons why why uh, it's it's called that. And then the Hugh Shale, which is the next big shale up, both enormously uh, prolific source rocks. Um, and and so there were a couple of different groups who looked at where the source rocks were in in terms of their optimum oil window um, and leased a ton of acreage around that um and and tried to drill um you know tight oil wells or oil shale wells and they it, it failed um mostly because uh it wasn't productive enough they they couldn't dewater it enough to get decent flow rates uh, there were a couple of wells drilled by what is now 88 energy um called icewine icewine 1 and icewine 2 and they didn't succeed and there were some wells drilled by great bear and they didn't succeed but they were uh, I think for the most part, um, their funding was coming from the tax credit scheme that Alaska had um, to encourage small explorers. And then the state of Alaska decided it couldn't afford to continue paying the tax credits. And so these companies fell into uh, hard times. And it was on the back of that that um, Pantheon Resources were able to merge with Great Bear, um, having had a not terribly successful campaign in East Texas. Um, not the first company to uh, break their heart in the Woodford um, in East <laughs> Texas. Um, that's that's another story for another time when when you're. So we're not going to do a podcast about that. We're going to do a series about that because <laughs> I, I can match you story for story on oh, that I'm one. Sure, oh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. So so on the back of that, um, Pantheon was able to to solve the conundrum of the corporate finance because. Bank of America, who had lent against the tax credits, had then sold the debt on to um, a, a hedge fund who were not of a mind to to let the original management off easy. Um, and so, so the guys at Pantheon put together a deal that allowed them to get their money back and and have some upside exposure, and and ended up in a fifty fifty merger um, with the the combined company Pantheon Resources, owning a hundred percent of what was then a relatively soon to expire group of, of blocks within a much larger area that they'd originally held. And they had to, in the space of two and a half months, put together a program to re-enter a well that needed to be tested in order to secure the unit that had been granted by the state of Alaska. It is right by the, uh, the Dalton Highway, I mean, literally a mile off the Dalton Highway, um, uh, between Pump Station 1 and Pump Station 2 on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. The original well, Alcade 1, had been drilled in 2015. They hadn't been able to test it because the Sag River had a very unusual uh, flooding event that meant everyone had to get, get out the way. The Dalton highways, uh, Highway was flooded. So the Pantheon, after this merger in, in the uh, winter of 2019, um, running into the spring, got out there, tested the well, flowed 100 barrels of oil a day, secured the leases, and, and then was able to start building from there. And, and cut a long story short, now owns 190,000 acres uh, covering two giant fields, one that, that our estimates about, about, he said, 481 million barrels of recoverable uh, liquids to go into the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, 
our estimate for the other. So that the one right by the pipeline is called Apun, um, named after a polar bear that is sadly deceased now, but not before it had, uh, I think, eaten someone who got into its uh, uh, into its cage up they in Anchorage. They have a tendency to do that. Yeah, yeah, apparently they're not as cuddly as, <laughs> yeah. as you think they are. I've, I've seen the photograph of, of just the uh, the left or the right sneaker um uh, you know right uh, but uh, that's, that's when i when i went up to homer alaska we took um what i'll call a puddle jumper but a small plane over to the bear preserve that mm -hmm. you kind of had to fly across the the cove or whatever you wanted to call it and uh, we went to go see the grizzly bears yeah and uh, mama grizzly was not too happy with us being there now Probably didn't get any closer than 50 yards. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not tangling with a grizzly or a polar yeah. bear for that well, matter. I was going to yeah. say, polar is even more. So, so Apun, yeah, the, the 481 million barrels alongside the uh, Dalton Highway. Uh, Kodiak is the one that we think um, our, the company's estimate was about 1.7 billion barrels. When we had Netherlands Sewell look at it, they gave it um, 960 something million barrels, uh, which is not a bad first try. Um, yeah. and, uh, so between those two assets and then, and then we, we drilled a, uh, a subsequent, um, appraisal well just alongside, uh, the Alcade one to, to demonstrate that the resources by the Dalton highway could flow at commercial rates. Cause of course that's, that's how you unlock it. If you can get into a West Texas style one well at a time, rather than having to, to build a huge facility and, and sink yeah. billions of dollars before you get to your first uh, production, that, that would transform the economics. And then uh, in, in terms of the Kodiak field, that was really set up um, by a 1988 Arco well called Pipeline State, uh, okay. which, which actually encountered almost all of the formations that are now part of our um, planned development. And what depth? Is, is so we're talking six and a half to um, to the bottom, uh, nine thousand feet. Okay. Um, there's there's Kaparik as well um, below the HRZ shale that that was encountered in in a couple of wells and maybe something to come back to. But it it it's overpressured. It's tough. You know, you start right. with the easy stuff and 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 yeah. work your way down. But the really exciting thing was that the pipeline state well had identified this enormous basin floor fan. So what you've got going on. Uh, and and this is similar to what's going on with all those nanoshook plays from Willow all the way across. Um, and now uh, you, you've probably seen recently that Apache farmed into uh, the Lanyapi acreage, which is Bill Armstrong's new um, venture. And and his thesis is that uh, you know what was all found in the West in the in the Cretaceous is just continuing all these planiforms across um, one side and the other. Um, and so it's similar sort of thing. You've got this moving um, coastal uh, margin, um, and it's being filled with all sorts of stuff along the way. Well, one of the things that it got filled with by us um, is this huge basin floor fan, which which we reckon is north of twenty billion barrels of, of oil in place, um, which is no small um, accumulation of oil, and that's fifteen hundred vertical feet of of column, um, and in terms of, of vertical relief it's it's a couple of thousand of feet of, of vertical relief um so the the arco well uh, pipeline state sort of set that up we drilled a sort of not not quite twin but but an, another one to in in what we hoped would be a better place for all the various uh, uh, uh formations that were found 
um, that came in and, and set up for, for a well 10 miles away, uh, a thousand feet up dip um, uh, and, and a much thicker section uh, that proved the Kodiak uh, resource. And that's, that's So this is just standard vertical type stuff. What kind well, of completion are we going to have? So to the exploration wells, obviously vertical. The, yeah. the first appraisal well up in the Alcade area um, uh, which is sort of the northern part of Apun, uh, was drilled with a horizontal well, um, basically using a, a an unconventional frack. So, okay. I mean, in order to prove the concept, uh, 5,000 foot lateral, 29 or 30 frack stages, um, just looks like a, a version of a West Texas um, right. uh, completion. And uh, in, in development, we'll be drilling 10,000 foot um, laterals and probably sixty frac stages, um, the uh, and and using the latest knowledge as to how to to run it best. The the one the frac we did um, was probably uh, I mean this this predates my arriving. So again, I'm I'm sort of I'm less confident that I'm a hundred percent right in terms of my sure. description. But uh, it was uh, it, it was what I'd describe as a second gen frac. Um, we we actually went back in to test a, a newer version you know slick water uh you know um micro emulsion breaking chemicals um, 100 mesh sand rather than coarse sand um much higher pump rates much less perforation to get limited entry and therefore much more complex frac and and the consequence of that was really uh you know it was it was a step change in the efficiency of the frac which is what's given us incredible confidence in the ability to develop this thing uh, uh economically what was the what was the uh, doctor's name on uh, Star Trek? McCoy? Oh, McCoy. Dr. Yeah. McCoy. You know when they would always have the episode or in the movie or whatever, they would go back in time and he'd be in a hospital and he'd like, these barbarians, what's well, wrong with yeah. them? That's kind of how we've gotten with fracks. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and what's wild, what I think so wild about fracks, particularly, you know, let's call this kind of virgin territory yeah. for, for fracks is, and I love you engineers, so please don't take offense. But y'all have no idea why a lot of this stuff works. Yeah. Really good at suggesting an experiment, isolating a variable, testing it, measuring yeah. it, and improving upon that. It's been the age of the engineer, but... Well, okay, before you get to your butt, and my mother yeah, always okay. used to say, whatever comes before the word butt, is normally means nothing that's yes, just the setup that's just the setup um the other thing you need to know about engineers though is that if you disagree with them they will generally blame themselves because it can only be that they didn't explain it properly right. <laughs> right. so so be careful yeah, yeah fair enough if i start explaining again yeah. more slowly exactly yeah. gonna have to dummy it down for this one mm. yeah uh no but but no so love to Love hearing the stories about the old fracks, what we're going to yeah. do on the new fracks. Uh, and it's just an, it's an amazing trajectory we've been on. Yeah. And we, we were lucky. We managed to, to get hold of a guy that I'd known for a while who, who's fracked a lot of wells and a lot of uh, unconventional plays. And, and you're right. It's, it's, um, it's not so much. I mean, you're right, Dr. McCoy. I, I, I do remember whichever one it was where Scotty started speaking to the computer until he saw a keyboard and said, oh, how quaint as he started yeah. to type. As he, didn't he design, design the tank for the, uh, the humpback whales that they had yes, to bring exactly. forward in time to exactly. stop the earth being destroyed? You know, it's, uh, yeah, there's always, there's always V'ger about to destroy the world. It's just mostly we don't know about it. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, so so when we're looking at this place, um, I mean, is structure going to matter to this? Is it just the blanket sand and it's going to be all about the frack? What? Well, so so in terms of, of the Apun field, um, it's, it's not really so much structure as you've got these different sands in the shelf break. Um, and of course, uh, you know, and and geologists forgive me for what I'm about to say. You know the the arrogance. I'm not, I'm not one. Oh so, no no no. Yeah, but, so but, whatever. But you may have a geologist listener, and I just don't want to alienate them unnecessarily. Rock liquor. Yeah. yeah. The uh, but but you know, it's easy to have the arrogance of thinking that you know what's there, so you start a numbering or a lettering of zones, <laughs> and you start in the wrong place. Right, right. Um, and and that's sort of what what's happened right. here is is realizing that that there are more. Um, uh, flooding events that mean that there are probably more sands than you originally thought, and you then you know, is it a and a half, or or should you right. with numbers, or what what should you've done? Um, but you've got you've got effectively two things. You've got the original discovery in Alcade, which which really you know you say engineers don't know what's going on, even the geologists here aren't quite sure what's going on. Right. You can see it on the seismic; it's you know three D seismic all over it, and it lights up you know with with everything to tell you that it's likely to be uh, oil bearing and porous and and the wells are proven it is but the real excitement of apun is these shelf break zones that are much higher permeability and they're in you know the, the way they're distributed um that that's uh, you know that uh, that's just a, a, a an engineering and and seismic interpretation problem of putting the wells in the right place the the really interesting thing about the basin floor fan uh, which is the kodiak field is that um, over because it's got so much vertical relief, um, and the critical thing that impacts the porosity is how deeply it was buried. The stuff that was buried deep obviously has lower um, porosity than the stuff that was never buried as deep. Right. But partly because of how long it's been down there, partly because of the compaction, um, sometimes it's mineralization. You know, and and you can see a pretty clear trend that the maximum depth of burial versus the porosity gives you a pretty good correlation. The uh, of course, the depth you find it at may not be what its actual maximum depth of burial is because it may have been uplifted over time. So, so you have to do cool geology stuff to. Uh, Speaking to of having that. to explain things slowly, yeah, going through with mom that that formations just aren't laid right on top of each yeah. other like pancakes. <laughs> yeah, oh, mom's yeah. smart lady, valedictorian of her high school, graduated yeah. from Rice University, but that was a little. No, mom, the pancake can be pushed up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so. yeah. No, the pancakes don't stay where they stay where they were. But but the uh, and also sometimes it's not laid down on a flat surface because the surface may have had a shape yeah. and filled it in, and that's partly what's gone on. The reason that it's such a thick basin floor fan is because actually it was being laid down into a, into a sort of a bowl, effectively. Yeah. Uh, but what you, what you find is as we move from the discovery well in Talitha on that, which is sort of at the deepest and, and worst quality, and you move a thousand feet up, and then you can move in, in, in our acreage another thousand feet up, you end up with the porosities getting um, to be two or three points higher. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, except that's average. And in these very thinly, you remember the, the, you know, the, that tiger striping type thing where you've got very thin sands and shales, and on average, it looks meh. Right. But, but when you actually look at the quality of the sand, what you find is as it goes, it's been buried less. You've actually got some you know, 
much higher permeability bits of sand. And, and of course, permeability moves logarithmically um, with porosity. So it, what may be two or three points of porosity can be orders of magnitude of permeability. And so what we find, it, it, it is partly a structural game, but it's about finding uh, where are the opportunities to complete in the rock that, that is high permeability because it was never buried as deep. And so we can we can start mapping where that is as we move from the southeast to the northwest in in the field, um, and then then it's a an interesting engineering balancing game. The cost of moving out another ten or fifteen miles to build pads and and to develop, you know, versus the lower cost of developing slightly poorer rock, um, you know, further east. So that's the, that's the stage we're at. We're we're at a point where. We're starting to apply for a hot tap into the Trans-Alaska pipeline so that we don't have to pay any of the existing owners for access. Um, we're starting to work with the state of Alaska on getting the approval for the development. And, and the Apun development, we're intending to do a, an FID or a final investment decision um, by the end of 2025 with a view to being drilling production wells and on production by the middle of 2026, which actually, if you think about it, um, is is pretty quick uh, yeah. compared to, to a development where you have to spend five to seven years building your facilities and your roads and, and all that sort of stuff. Kodiak, that's going to take a little bit more appraisal just because it's so huge and we've only got three wells in it um, and, and potentially a lot more oil um, further, to the, uh, uh, further to the west. We're going to need to do a, a, a bit more appraisal just to work out where do you need to put the pads in order to make sure you, you put them in the right place. So we're, we're going to be starting up production and ramping up um, from 2026 onwards. Um, and so we're in the stage of doing all that planning work and, and all that uh, assembling the supply chains because it's a manufacturing uh, yeah. problem. You just, you just laid out why I've never done a deal in Alaska in my yeah. life. Just, you know, private equity, we were doing, call it $100 million, $150 million per, per uh, company. and the work you have to go through to kind of figure out these plays. Cause a lot of times we were drilling the first horizontal well in accounting, yep. you know, yep. I mean, we were kind of captain Kirk boldly going where no man's gone, uh, before on stuff. Yeah. You, you didn't have a lot of dollars to go and figure out whether you had something. And the unfortunate thing, the, the great thing and the unfortunate thing about an engineer is they always feel like they, they can fix something. And they yeah. can usually given time yeah. and money and the hard part for my job being the finance guy was to say, no. Well, <laughs> we're, that's, we're, you know, and just, that's, okay. So yeah. that's, that's how the opportunity for me came up because the company, uh, at the, by the start of this year had spent north of $300 million on, uh, in aggregate between the legacy great bear, um, ownership and, and Pantheon subsequently, um, and had all but run out of money. And you know, look, there are, I think there are probably three rules that, that you from, from your side of the fence would, would also agree with. The first is that none of those oil companies ever went bust because they had too much cash on the balance sheet. Right. Yeah. The second one was they could always get money when they didn't need it. And if you needed it, that last dollar cost you a million. I used to always tell my limited partners, when you don't feel like giving me the money, that's when you should. Yeah. When you want to give me the money, you probably shouldn't. Yeah. You know? Oh no, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then the third rule is never believe in your stuff 
sufficiently that you forget the first two rules. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, in good faith, these guys thought that the well they were drilling was going to prove up the uh, you know, the the unarguable commercial case. They set expectations for uh, what it was going to do, and they overspent um, because if you think about doing it during COVID, to the point where for the frack spread they were bringing pumping equipment in from Russia and from Canada and from all over the world, so it, everything ended up costing a lot. And and as as uh, you know, the the operations vice president says he'll never underestimate the power of Canadian trucking unions ever again. <laughs> um, you would not believe what the sand cost, um, but but it meant that they then found themselves um, without funding for the next operation as a protection against this one going, uh, not, not delivering what was expected. And, and so it was, it was an unfortunate set of circumstances. A bunch of people who, who have done, I mean, let's face it, how many people can say that they put together a prospect and drilled it and appraised it to a point where there was nearly a couple of billion barrels of recoverable oil um, that, that is extremely commercial that's right that's that's a hell of an achievement unfortunately on its own it's not enough you've got to marry that with the corporate strategy and the funding that's going to get you there yeah and so that's that's why i came on board was to to refresh the corporate strategy to a point where it became credible um that you can deliver on the value of it uh, because it be, wouldn't be any comfort to pantheon shareholders for the asset to be producing a couple of hundred thousand barrels a day 10 years from now just owned by someone else right um yeah that's that we always would talk about the analogy for us was a a, a resort development someone yeah. has a vision this will be yeah. beautiful they go in they build the fancy resort don't make enough money go into bankruptcy second person sees the vision of the of the first person wow this is great buys it out breaks even the third person buys it cheap enough where then and they and they, they, make, they make money yeah, yeah 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 and and that's so that's really been the challenge and and so you know the the easy thing to do uh would be to have come in uh you know new broom uh, you know, i'm sure you've, saw, you've you've seen it again you know new guy comes in kitchen sink full of write-offs you know rebased down to a point from which their tenure is going to look like genius because, right. yeah. <laughs> right so so you know the, the easy thing would have been come in do a, a a rescue funding that that diluted existing shareholders by 50 70 whatever percent right. um uh, but make sure it had enough money that it could then succeed in what it was doing um and and that wouldn't have hurt me personally um but actually with the assets and the opportunity that it wouldn't have been the right thing to do and and you, i mean you're at a point you i know you're going to pretend that you don't care about your reputation but, but <laughs> we are we are at that stage of our careers where we care about legacy and we care about yeah. doing the right thing um and so so the task we set ourselves was how do we minimize the dilution whether it's of equity in the asset or equity in the company um so that the existing shareholders capture the maximum share of the value and so the the real strategy you know we we looked at what do we think this would be worth um five years from now if we fund it um and and you run the the math uh, on on the type wells that we managed to demonstrate can be achieved and and it looks like it's worth between five and ten dollars a barrel which is a large number when you multiply it by one one and a half two billion barrels right um now how much dilution do you have to take to get there 
Um, and the great advantage of being the you know the West Texas of the North is we don't have to spend you know on Willow they're spending between six and eight billion dollars I think and five to seven years to get to first production. Um, at Pika Horseshoe they're spending I think one and a half to two billion dollars because they're going to use some of the uh, I think Kuparik facilities. Um, uh, uh, we're going to spend to get to first production about one hundred and twenty million dollars. And, and our total cash sink is about $300 million. Now, that's actually quite a doable number um, for, for anyone to do. Um, and so our, our strategy was to look at to what extent can you achieve some kind of vendor financing that, that will support so that the equity component doesn't have to be you know, a 50% dilution of, of the company's market cap. Um, and so that's, that's what we're looking at is with each of the major packages of uh, of development, you've got the fracking. You know the fracks are five to seven million dollars per well. So if you've got a thousand to two thousand wells that we're going to need to drill over the course of of the next decade, um, you can imagine that the uh, the service company who have that contract without having to tender for it um, are are going to see value in that access to to a stream of work that's reliable. Right, um, and so what we're talking about is how do they help us reduce the amount of equity outlay that we need to get to first production, and to the point at which we can start drawing on reserve-based lending, which is going to require, yeah, you know, I don't know, five to ten wells. Um, uh, it's unlikely a bank's going to lend against a single well. More, no, more well, no, wells, but I mean, but yeah, 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 but I mean, in terms of when you look at the diversification of of the streams, um, you know, it's 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 certainly less than a hundred. It's probably less than ten, actually, if you've got established decline curves um, for the wells and that sort of thing. Again, it depends how much of the value you want right. to borrow, et cetera. But but these wells are incredibly valuable. Once you've drilled a well for in round numbers, fifteen million dollars, and it's going to produce between one and a half and two million barrels, and and the first year's worth is going to more than pay for the well. Right. Um, you know, it's it, the 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 financial structure of it makes it actually quite financeable. Um, the and and then you know you may pay expensive uh, quasi debt with VPPs. You may pay, but, but I mean there's there is sort of something that looks like debt after you've got production. Right. So how do you get to the production? And so how do you get deferral of the um, uh, of the vendor costs for the major packages, the drilling, the completion, the downhole tools that allow you to get over that hump to a point where the equity proportion, instead of looking at I need three hundred million dollars of equity, or two hundred million dollars, or even a hundred. It could be down to fifty million dollars of equity, right? And that's that's the path we're on right now, and and trying to get that all assembled over the next quarter. Um, and there are a lot of people in the market betting we can't do it, and there are a lot of people betting that we can do it, um, <laughs> including including me. You know, I, I've I've been a buyer of the company's shares partly because uh, you know. I, it, it worked for the Greeks. It took them ten years, but it worked for the Greeks to burn the boats. Um, you know, so by making sure that my money was in the company before funding, so that then I wouldn't be tempted to hold my money to to put it in on the right. cheap in due course. You know, that that stiffens the sinews and summons up the blood. Um, no, I love this discussion because I think you're right. I mean, we are at the point in our lives where you need to do the right thing uh, on stuff. Um, you just sleep better at night. Yeah, you know, and well, and, you if you've got the bladder for it, 
yeah. <laughs> if I could sleep the whole way through the night, I'd be <laughs> delighted. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, no, I don't have the bladder, uh, bladder for that. But I, I will say one of the things that I think I've grown into that I had no idea that I would, when you become the older guy, you just don't want to, the younger guys to make the same mistakes you do. Yeah. And you yeah. really do feel the responsibility, you know, sitting around to, hey, you know, because I'll see stuff and I'll call up and say, hey, take this for what, it, what you're paying for it, i.e. free, but just, hey, I did this. And yeah. It didn't work, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's one of the cool things about the digital wildcatters guys around here, because when I say, hey, guys, it didn't work, they always go, well, tell me more about that. And I go, well, I tried it in 07, I tried it in 11, and yeah. uh, they're like, one other thing, though, to keep in the back of your mind, because I think it's great that that you're thinking about it, wearing your shareholder hat, looking out for those folks. I will say this. I have had a million beers in my life with a CEO that sat there and said, man, if I just had a little bit more money, I could have gotten through here. Oh, yeah. I could have gotten through there. I have never had a beer with a CEO said, you know, Chuck, what's my problem? I just raised too much money. Yeah. You I know. know. Look, there's no yeah. question at all. I think I think and 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 if there was, you know, it it's 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 invidious to pick out individual mistakes, but if there are individual mistakes um that were made in the past, it was being too um solicitous of shareholder interest by saying I'm not prepared to raise money at more than X discount to the market price. And and there are other companies who say, look, the the market can take care of itself. I'll I'll raise money at whatever price the market will give me. And if if shareholders with the benefit of hindsight want to say that was too cheap, then I can remind them that my obligation is to the company, not to the shareholders. Because that I mean in, in corporate law, no. your your obligation is to do what's best for the corporation. And and for the most part, that's aligned with shareholders. But but actually, in the end, if you have a choice between running out of money and going bust, or having raised money at too low a a, 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 a price, you always have to raise too much money at too low a price. And right. I think that's that's where we're going to change. Is is we have to get ourselves to a position where we can overcapitalize. But I, before I do that, I want to make absolutely sure that we have put as much money on the table that didn't dilute. Um, so right. that we've we've constrained the problem. Um, yeah. Now, if we know this isn't going to happen, but if everybody who has indicated a preparedness to provide their part of the funding through the the different strands that we're working, then we wouldn't need any equity. But we all know that the real world never delivers all the things you right. expected. So it's it's a question of right. working it working it through to get to that point. But I mean, you you were talking about you know making mistakes. Uh, you know, there, there are two things. One is, uh, you know, everyone's going to make mistakes. The the people you want to keep are the people who only make that mistake once. Yeah. You know, the, no, the, the exactly people you want right. to get rid of are the people who keep making the same mistake again <laughs> right, and again right. and again. Um, and the second thing is, I, I could tell you stories of people who made horrific mistakes earlier in their career that are now in very senior positions. And, and you know, when I've got people who are making mistakes, um, I... I point to this guy and I say, you know, here he is sitting up there or here she is uh, in one case, sitting sitting in a very senior position. You would never have guessed that they made a career ending mistake, you know, in the first three or four years of their uh, of their career. So so if you ever, you know, I, 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 I tell them, what do you know about Catherine the Great? You know, the yeah. only thing anyone really knows is apparently she had sex with horses. Um, yeah, right. which, which is probably a myth put around by her enemies, but it doesn't sure. matter. That's yeah. all we know. And yet we still call her Catherine the Great. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's you know you can't you can't unless unless what you just did was worse than having sex with a horse. There's a sporting right. chance that your career isn't over <laughs> after all. Um, There's hope for me. Yeah, yet. I love this. <laughs> Never had sex with a horse. Exactly. So, yeah. it's, and it's not on my bucket list. <laughs> horse was winking at me, but I said no. <laughs> Yeah, so this is cool. So, so kind of just a punchline uh, to to sort of wrap this up is, and I'll say it, but you you opine and and change it, whatever. We've we've drilled, uh, got enough in the way of development. We're putting a plan in place. We start hitting drilling in two thousand twenty five. Is there a milestone potentially we hit between now and then that gives us more information? Are we shooting seismic? Is there some offsetting activity yeah. or anything? Or it's just literally we're kind of blocking and tackling at this it's, point. It's a lot of blocking and tackling. It's it's uh, you know, someone said, you know, what what are going to be the catalysts that are going to move the share price? Uh, and I, I said, look, we're going to be the most boring company in the world in the sense that we're doing lots and lots of pretty unsexy small things that are getting it all aligned so that right. we can we can do it right build um, a pad get and, a permit yeah yeah you know and 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 you know it's rather than trying to rush for a a, a listing in the US you know putting in place a 15 month process cuz we don't need to have moved the listing nor have raised a lot of money until the middle of 2025 um so putting in place the program that gets us you know so controls and governance so sarbanes oxley compliant so that we've got We've done all the right marketing ahead of time, so that when we do come to market in the U.S., um, we we've got it sorted out. Um, and and so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, getting the right people in place, getting you know, in terms of local sand supply, because we're sure as heck not going to be shipping sand from from the lower 48 up to uh, up to Alaska. So working with the person i did a can. podcast this morning on the jones act so i can oh. guarantee you that we're not going to be doing that no but anyway no, no, exactly yes. but but so so there's lots of stuff now in the meantime what are the things that that are going to be market moving because here we are capitalized at 250 million dollars versus or, or a bit less than 250 million dollars today versus an aspiration to be uh, capitalized at a price equivalent to whatever the diluted version of five to ten dollars per barrel is, um, and and it's there's kind of come a moment where people start to see that success is inevitable because we've done all the right things, and so the right. catalyst is the moment at which people see it becoming inevitable, and that probably becomes the point at which we demonstrate that we can raise a lot of money without equity dilution, so that instead of fearing fifty percent dilution. People are now discounting ten to twenty percent dilution, and that's the point at which it'll take off. Yeah, um, and that's that's going to be over the course of the next three, six, and nine months. You know, different pieces of that will will get to a point at which enough people will start to say, "Hey, they might actually pull it off." Yeah. Um, so th that makes a lot of sense. The one thing we didn't talk about, but I got to hear about, just crazy stories about how you have to operate up there with the weather. I mean, yeah, you know, you know, because in West Texas, it gets a little cold and all, but you're drilling yeah. your well, all that. Every once in a while, we have winter storm Uri and pipes freeze and all hell breaks loose for 48, 72 hours. But yeah. I mean, in Alaska, do we have things like breakup that we that we have in in Canada where you literally had to drill on ice and as soon as it starts melting? Yeah. So to so for exploration wells, you're you're drilling on on ice. And so you've got to be off the tundra before. Um, uh, that breaks up, and the state 
basically tells you, and it's typically at the end of April um, that that's going to happen. Um, so it's in that sense, it's is very similar. Uh, but that that's really something for exploration for development. You're on gravel pads with gravel roads, um, and it's it's winterization. And and I I think that it I, I think until you've been out in the kind of cold that even wearing you know muffled. Uh, over your mouth, <laughs> right. it's still burning your lungs. Um, right. That's why when you have a blizzard hit, the state tells you um, you've got to shut down and stay indoors. You can't you can't have people even walking outside between between the the you know the the, the office and the and the rig floor. So it's it, it is very similar to northern Canada. Um, you know some of the some of those activities up on the Mackenzie Delta. It gets just as cold there um, in northern Russia. You know, I visited um, some some rigs, uh, you know, way back in my career, um, which were in an incredibly cold place. Um, we can take a brief pause and yeah. rewind to, yeah. <laughs> or just leave it in. The yeah. you know the the podcaster's uh, job um, requires you to turn off your phone at the beginning, and that's literally it. I mean, yeah. literally I know. hit record and turn off your phone and i, I yeah. failed you and miserably. i'm feeling incredibly virtuous because while you were just getting yourself sorted out i turned off my phones and and said i'm not going to be that guy yeah well <laughs> i was that guy today so but uh, but no so so i mean what you have though is is you have uh situations in which just everything takes twice as long as you expect it to take because uh, even even with winterization, you're still exposed to the logistical constraints. So, so you know, taking you know, it's a JCB in in, in England. What what is it? It's a caterpillar or whatever is it? You're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so you know you, you're you're having to clear snow that's a, uh, that's piling up or being blown. Um, you're having to have uh, heating for things that you'd never even think about having to heat when you're down here. Right. Um, and and the the hardest part of it is you're having to get people a thousand miles from anywhere that they really want to be on a long-term basis <laughs> right. and asking them to be at their most efficient um, in that situation. And, and it's in that regard, it's very much like the old days of the North Sea where, where there, was, uh, you know, there was a crossover from the, the pioneering days where people felt that there was high esteem to being right on the frontier and, and taking a helicopter to work you know, for two right. weeks and coming back and, and whatever else. Whereas now it's sort of like it's just a job in a difficult environment and, right. and it's cold and miserable and dark for however many months of the year. Yeah, you know, you'd have been as freaked out if you'd come, <laughs> yeah. come out at lunchtime and it was still dark. It's still dark, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, but so in that regard, we've we've had situations where you know you you start a flow back, um, the blizzard comes in, you have to shut everything down, and and you know. That there's nothing that a, a, a hydraulic refract well likes more than being shut down for a few days um, right. and, uh, during flowback, and then trying to get it all back. Particularly on track. when it's got a lot of frac fluid on. Oh it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Although, so you know, this weird, weird aside, real quick. Yeah. Uh, we were drilling in the Marcellus in West Virginia. Yeah, we fracked a well, and literally something broke, and we had to shut everything in, and it sat there for 120 days while we mm -hmm. were. And you know we were all oh we junked the well and all we turned it back on yeah. and it was our biggest well to date and we f we produced back six seven percent of the frac fluid yeah now it, it dissipated it, it, now <laughs> and that became standard operating practice 
but like we would have fired the CEO that walks yeah. in and suggested that. Yeah, yeah. no, so no exactly. It's, it, it is exactly. crazy on that. And, and actually, you know, uh, Tony Bauman, our, our senior vice president of engineering, uh, you know, was in the Marcellus. You know, said he, and and he started out saying, well, you know, we we fracked wells in zero um, of your American Fahrenheit degrees right. rather than the uh, European metric ones, but uh, you know, and even as low as as ten below. Um, so how hard it can can it be in Alaska? And and then he. Uh, he was up there for for an operation uh, at one point. And he said, "Yeah, this isn't Pennsylvania." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah. David, you were cool to come on and talk about this. Um, at some point, you got to come back and tell us what happened. You know? Well, we'd definitely so. do that. And and the other thing I'd love to talk to you about another time is uh, helium and carbon dioxide and and industrial gases, because uh, you know a little teaser for you there that that. Almost all the helium in the world is produced in conjunction with methane. Um, you know, the big producers are Russia. Um, the, you've got a lot of production in America, and then you've got Qatar. Um, if we're in a world that's trying to decarbonize, then all of the technologies that we have, you know, even, even that phone that, that rang, um, helium was involved in its manufacture to create an inert atmosphere that, that high-tech kit can be made. Right. You can't launch rockets without helium. Right. Um, and, and so... How do we make sure that we don't shut down modern life uh, in in our quest to to shut down uh, fossil fuels? Um, so it's it's a uh, and plus, how can we have life where you can't suck on a balloon and make the well? Make I was going to say the, the squeaky voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but if we that, can we that can would do be horrible. That, we can do that with hydrogen. <laughs> so so it's okay. The world for squeaky voices will be fine. Oh, okay, but no, yeah. but the I mean, the, what's happening in the in the global helium industry uh, is is really interesting. And, yeah, and well, let's that's definitely another, do another that. Another conversation, another day. Let's do yeah. that yeah. again. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's a real pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.